Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope you all had a happy Halloween. Well, this week has been a bit hectic. I'm so sorry for the late episode, everyone. If you saw my social media, you know I was battling a very powerful demon, so the podcast just had to wait an extra day. Also, the demon may have whispered something about some fun collabs we have coming up before I banished him. No sponsors this week, so enjoy this ad-free episode. I have a little treat near the end of the episode after our two main stories tonight, so stay tuned for that. First up, we have another story by D. Calhoun. This one is called Crucified. His knees nearly buckled as he was brought in through the large oak doors. The chains that bound him were thick, many, and heavy. He grunted with each step, and his head and eyes remained lowered. He was adorned in heavy robes as well, and the aforementioned chains snaked and looped over, around, and even through these robes. The tribunal watched his every move, even though he was flanked on both sides by armed guards. Not armed in the commonly known sense, mind you, but outfitted with electrical prods to keep him from moving. The effect was particularly brutal when one of the prods struck the chains as that carried the jolt all over his body. All he could think was that it would soon be over and that all would be quiet, both surrounding him and inside his own head. Six women and six men made up the tribunal and were seated according to gender on either side of the magistrate who would preside over the hearing. The tribunal members were dressed in black robes with their faces visible. The magistrate, however, was completely cloaked and a voice rendered completely robotic by a vocoder so that his or her identity would remain a complete secret. The prisoner had finally made it to the spotlighted part of the floor known as the area of judgment and looked up to face those who would render verdict and sentence. One of the guards pulled the hood of his cloak back to reveal his face which beamed with hope. The tribunal stirred, although they didn't realize it among themselves. If they were to pause the proceedings and compare thoughts, many of them would admit that they had never seen such a look upon a prisoner's face. Usually a prisoner carried a look of absolute fear or desperation 
or crushing defeat on their faces, which were generally lined and aged beyond their years. The time imprisoned and awaiting judgment was harsh and took a hard toll on those who were subject to it. Some wept uncontrollably, and some were belligerent or defiant, determined to go down fighting, or at least as close to fighting as the circumstances would allow. This, however, was different. The prisoner looked hopeful and downright relieved to be here, very strange indeed but there was certainly no definitive set of rules or guidelines regarding how a human was going to act in a situation such as this a cold mechanical voice broke the silence what are the crimes of this prisoner the magistrate asked the tribunal members rose to their feet For generations, the tribunal members had spoken in unison, as one voice, learning and studying and memorizing the accusations as a group. As to those accusations completely drummed into their collective psyche, this would allow them, as a collective, to fully understand the charges at hand and to bring about a clear and concise punishment for those charges. The twelve unified voices spoke. This man has corrupted and preyed upon the innocent, the pure, the naive, and the unknowing. He wallows in indecency and wears its smudge like a badge of honor. He has reveled in a life of deceit and would feign ignorance of that deceit if confronted with or questioned about. He can question no longer. The man stood, unflinching, completely unresponsive to the accusations. The unnerving calm seemed to radiate from him. A sense of peace. The The acts of immorality committed by this man would fill ledger ledger upon ledger. ledger. The tribunal continued. The varying pitches and tonal qualities of the voices somehow blended in perfect harmony. Sin upon sin. The feigned seven deadly sins obliterated long ago. Lust and fornication. Robbing the purity of woman after woman. Indulging the flesh with drink and substance, dishonesty, lying, cheating, anger, and hate. A mind so conflicted with inner war and rage. Any redeeming qualities that this man may have possessed died in excruciating death long ago. And it is the opinion of this tribunal that he should join those qualities and be put to death. Drive home the nail, the bastard is crucified. At these words, the man did react, if only for less than a second. The calm, for the faintest instant, transformed to elation. 
Had any of the tribunal been looking directly into his eyes at that nanosecond, they would have seen the shift in his expression. Although none would have recognized it for what it was, they would have disregarded it as the tick of a condemned man and would listen as the sound of their voices decayed into silence while waiting for the magistrate to respond. There was a long silence, longer than any of this tribunal could ever remember. They stood still and waited for the magistrate to speak. The magistrate was choosing words carefully because this magistrate had seen the man's reaction and knew what it was. After long moments of careful consideration, the magistrate finally spoke. Look upon this wicked, wicked thing before you. The voice from the vocoder rattled. The voice addressed the tribunal, not the man in chains before them. At this, the tribunal members shifted their gaze from the accused to the magistrate seated between them. All of the things you say about this man are true, the magistrate spoke. He is guilty a thousand times over and has zero remorse for his actions. What is more distressing is that he would have done far more and far worse had the opportunity presented itself. There is a very old saying which says, it's the thought that counts. Keeping this adage in mind, this Cretan could be crucified based upon his sheer desire to do wrong. If desire of that nature so happened to be punishable. Alas, these ponderings for another time, and this man's actions condemn him well enough on their own. There, however, will be no crucifixion on this day. As the magistrate's words reverberated in the large hall, the weight of their meaning dropped the man to his knees. The guards pulled him back to his feet as tears began to stream down his face. The tribunal looked on, and understanding swept over them. The magistrate continued. The punishment for this man is not ours to give. To end this man's life would not serve as a punishment, because if you look into his soul, you will see that death is exactly what he wants. It is this magistrate's decision to let him exist, to be in agony. Continued life will be his punishment. It will curse him more to just let him live. As the man was led sobbing from the hall, the magistrate and tribunal turned their backs to him. As they left the chamber, they realized that a crucifixion had indeed happened that day. I did not mean to kill the things I loved. He placed the note on the basin 
then pulled the box of razor blades from the medicine cabinet. He carefully removed one from the box and watched it glisten in the bathroom's bright light. He pressed the blade to his wrist. Blood began to well up in the indentation. As the blade sliced into his skin, he closed his eyes, ready to pull the blade across his arm and finally end the pain and loss. He dropped the blade into the sink and crumpled to the floor, crying. The blood from his arm smeared onto his white undershirt as he pulled himself into a ball, shivering. Yet again, he hadn't the nerve to do it. The cries became sobs. The sobs became moans. And the moans finally gave way to snoring as the man fell asleep, still in the fetal position on his bathroom floor. His last thought before drifting off was of how wonderful it would be if someone would put him to death since he couldn't seem to muster the strength to do it for himself. This next story comes to us from Sean Moreau, and it's sure to give you a teensy existential crisis by the end. Just remember, I'm not dead. Dead. I used to think of that as a good thing. I remember whenever I was having a bad day, or if I was just in a bad mood, I used to close my eyes and remind myself that it could be worse. I used to remind myself that I wasn't dead. Back then I believed that death was the worst thing that could happen to a person. I actually believed that. Now, I say the same words every morning when I wake up. I am not dead. And I weep. Or maybe I don't. I guess it depends on how you define the word. If weeping is an action of the soul, a deep, bitter howling of the mind, if weeping is an emotional pit, then I weep. If weeping is the actual physical process of crying and wailing, then I don't. I can't. Good morning, Mr. Moreau. It's the nurse with the freckles. Amelia. She's my favorite. She talks to me while she works. The only other person who talks to me anymore is an old preacher who comes by about once a month and 
reads a chapter out of the Bible before moving on to the next room. Amelia opens the curtains, letting the morning sun in, then gets to work. She checks me over for any changes, switches out bags here and there, all the while telling me about her date with her boyfriend the night before. I try to focus on her words, immerse myself in the moment. I know what comes next, and the only peace I can give myself is in blocking that knowledge from my mind, pushing it away, or at least try to. Eventually, she picks up my chart and looks at it, shaking her head. Still with the samples. I swear, Mr. Moreau, as long as we've been doing this, the doctor probably has more of you bagged up in his lab than in this room. It isn't the first time she's told that joke. But I'd laugh if I could. It's probably true. Every morning the last four years, the nurses have been taking samples from me. Hair, saliva, urine, blood, skin... From what Amelia's told me, and from what I've overheard, there are five other patients who have the same treatment as me. All from the same doctor. It's an odd treatment, according to everyone who works here. But he's an odd man. A genius, they say, but an odd man. So they follow his instructions. After all... Why would a doctor give his patient a treatment he didn't need? They even say he's had some success. I don't know how that can be, but sometimes I dream. After she collects the samples, the treatment begins. In my head, I'm shouting, screaming, jumping off the bed and racing towards the door. In the real world, I lie flat on my back, staring at the ceiling as she rubs an alcohol swab over the inside of my arm and prepares the first injection. It feels like someone started a fire beneath my skin. The liquid spreads through my body and I feel every second of it. The world becomes hazy and the pain is so intense that for a while, I can't feel anything else. I can't see or hear or smell or taste. The entire world is burning. And for a brief moment, I believe, as I do every morning, that this time they went too far and I'm finally dead. It isn't until the second injection that I know I'm wrong. The second injection feels, for lack of a better word, heavy. My muscles cramp under the strain and my limbs ache. Like they're being dragged down through the bed, through the floor, down into the sewers. For the first few seconds, the experience is only mildly unpleasant. Like lying under a pillow while a fat man sits on top. Then the medicine reaches my organs. My heart is the first to be affected. 
Suddenly, I can feel it beating in my chest, but each beat sends out a tremor, and the blows become more and more painful, like my heart is trying to beat its way down through my back and out of me. I'm surprised that I am not bouncing off the bed. Next, I feel it in my lungs. Amelia doesn't seem to notice any change in me, but it feels as though I'm being smothered. I know the air is entering my lungs, but I gain no relief from it. The world seems to spin above me. I pray for oblivion, but nobody answers me. Then the drug reaches my stomach and bowels, causing them to cramp uncontrollably. When the pain recedes enough for me to see the world again, Amelia is gone, and I feel a sense of overwhelming relief until I realize that I can taste chalk. They put the pills back into my routine. I try to shudder, but I am no more capable of that than jumping out of the window and flying to safety. The best definition of success that I ever heard was from a girl I dated back in my school days. She used to say that success was when you made enough money doing what you enjoyed doing to live the way you enjoyed living. By that definition, I was a success by the time I was 20. It just happened that the way I enjoyed living only required me to have a running van and enough food to get by on. And what I enjoyed doing amounted to playing the guitar a few hours a day on a street corner for change. I also bought and sold some weed when I could afford to and didn't end up smoking it all myself. I told myself I wasn't going to do that forever, that I'd eventually get a band, start picking up gigs, or maybe find some rich girl to shack up with somewhere. Honestly, though, even then, I didn't think those were likely. I just didn't see any point to aspiring to the life my parents had lived. Nine-to-five jobs, thankless bosses, all so I could have kids who I never get to see. So I aspired to the unlikely and didn't care much if it ever happened. Even a blind squirrel occasionally grabs a nut, and one day I did run into a bit of good fortune. A guy I shared some weed with told me about a bar just outside of my town that had an open mic night and let the bands that kept the crowds happy have a few free beers while they were performing. It was a short enough drive that the beers covered the gas, and the girls that came in were mostly from a nearby college, which made them young enough to still be into broke musicians. It was my own personal nirvana until the night of the accident. Play that July sunrise song. The bartender, a cute brunette with big boobs, pushed another beer across the counter to me. I had been trying to get into her pants for months, but she was impervious to my charms. Or maybe she was just into girls. She flirted with anyone who hit on her, but I never saw her go home with anyone. As I climbed back onto the stage, it occurred to me to wonder 
if she really liked my music or if she was just sending me up so I'd stop hitting on her. Not that it mattered. Every time she put me on stage, I had a fresh beer in my hand, and that was all it took to keep me happy. I strummed idly for a few seconds, took a drink of my beer, and started up the song. The bar was almost empty, not counting me and the bartender, or all of three people in the place that usually fit a hundred. It was spring break and most of the kids were gone, but since open mic doesn't cost management anything but a few drinks, they kept it on the schedule. I didn't much care about the how and why of it. What little money I'd had that morning was still in my pocket, and my head was buzzing like a mason jar full of flies. I finished up July Sunrise and moved into Ode to a Girl I Barely Remember, giving the bartender a sly wink. A few lines in, the doors opened and two men walked in. They weren't regulars, and they weren't college students. As drunk as I was, they still seemed out of place. For starters, they were too old for the bar. At 27, I was usually one of the oldest people in the room. These two were in their 40s, at least. Both were bald. Not balding and not with close-cut hair. They were completely bald. They were both dressed in button-down shirts and slacks. But the thing that made them stand out the most was the way they moved. Well, not how they moved, but how they moved together. Sometimes when I'm playing in front of a large enough group, when the music is loud enough and I'm on my game, sometimes I'll see people moving in a rhythm. It isn't dancing, exactly. They walk, or they take a drink of their beer, or they talk, but they'll do it in rhythm with my music. Unwittingly, they take my music and embrace it. Let it guide, not what they do, but how they do it. It was like that when the two men came in, except they weren't moving in my time. It was like they were both listening to something that I couldn't hear, and every step, every motion was in time with the beat. I wouldn't have noticed it if one of them had come in alone, but with both of them in the room, I couldn't help but see it. They moved slowly towards the front counter, pausing as they approached the other patrons, their noses flaring, then moving on. At the counter, the brunette smiled and asked them what they wanted. One of the men answered. The other leaned forward, his nose flaring briefly. The girl's smile faded, though I wasn't sure if it was something that was said or the sniffing that bothered her. After a few seconds, she nodded politely and poured each man a beer. I had planned to keep going for another song or two, since I still had half my drink left, but from the girl's expression, I thought she might appreciate a knight in shining armor coming to rescue her. I hopped off the stage, almost twisting my ankle when I landed, and headed for the bar. Hey, beautiful. Don't suppose I can get this topped off, I said, ignoring the two bald men as completely as I could manage. They didn't return the favor. Instead, one of them leaned in, inhaling deeply, but instead of leaning back as he had with everyone else, he leaned closer and sniffed again. 
I glowered at the man, but he took no notice of my aggravation, instead turning his attention to his companion and smiling. The friend turned his attention to me and grinned. That was a great piece you were just playing. Let me buy you a drink. I've never been the kind to turn down a free drink, no matter where it's coming from. After that drink, the bald man bought me another. We talked. We talked about where I was from and how I lived and how many friends I had. We talked about my family and my blood type. Every few questions, we would pause just long enough for them to buy me another round. And then there were more questions. The night became a blur. I do remember that the bald men left before I did. And I remember that, try as I might, I couldn't talk the bartender into letting me spend the night with her. I also know that at some point in the night, I decided that I wasn't too drunk to drive. The exact order of the events and how much time separated them, I can only guess at. But there was one memory that stands out. One very distinct image that is ingrained in my mind for all eternity. I remember headlights coming towards me, fast. And behind those headlights, just barely visible. I remember seeing what appeared to be the top of two bald heads inside whatever was about to hit me. And then I woke up. In the hospital, I was alone. I was paralyzed. Not dead yet. That's what I told myself. I wasn't dead. And as long as I wasn't dead, there was hope. As long as I wasn't dead, there were things to look forward to. As long as I wasn't dead, I could know that things weren't as bad as they could be because I could be dead. Nurses came and went, checking on me. I tried to signal them, tried to get their attention by blinking or twitching a finger or sheer force of will. All to no end. Then I met the doctor. He moved oddly, I thought. It was like he was trying too hard. It was like he had only recently gotten his body. Like he was thinking about each motion, mimicking what he'd seen. Not simply moving, the way people do. And he was bald. Completely bald. Like the men I'd met at the bar. Then he touched me. I hadn't thought about it when the nurses were taking their samples and measurements. The fact that I could still feel. But I thought about it when he touched me. I thought about it because he felt so wrong. His skin was too stiff. Not like skin, but a glove made to look like skin. As he took his measurements, his eyes caught mine. And in an instant, I knew. I knew that he knew. He wasn't looking into the eyes of someone he thought was a vegetable. He was looking into the eyes of a human being. He was looking into the eyes of a desperate, miserable man, and he was pleased. He was enjoying my suffering. He hated me. Truly hated me. 
If I could have moved, I would have torn away from his touch. I would have run from the room. But I couldn't. The next day, the injection started. Such pain. I'd never known that kind of pain. I had been beaten before. I'd been in accidents and come down with diseases that made me pray for death. I'd suffered before that day, or at least I thought I had. The injections were more than I could handle, more than I could think about. I went mad. I know I did. The world twisted around me. The meaning of everything changed. I left my body, or at least I convinced myself that I had. Floating through the world, tethered to my body by a thread. The universe compressed into the size of a small hospital room, and my pain became a billion supernovas. My mouth became a black hole, swallowing my screams before they could leave me. I don't know how long I laid there, curled up in the comfort of madness. It could have been hours or days. Eventually, I returned to myself. Though, when the next morning came and another series of injections coursed through my veins, I regretted my sanity. It didn't take me long to start hating the nurses. I knew they didn't know what they were doing, but it was hard to care about that when I was suffering such agonies at their hands. But as much as I hated them, I hated the doctor a thousand times more, and I feared him with equal measure. If I'd known what was still in store for me, I would have feared him more. The chalky taste fades in about an hour, and as soon as it's gone, I try to convince myself that it wasn't there at all, that I was mistaken. I don't believe it. I never believe it. I just want to. The first year in the hospital, I passed the time by counting the holes in the tile over my head. I named them. I made up stories about them. Lineages and relationships. Affairs and wars. Treaties and betrayals. I calculated a rough estimate of the number of holes in all the tiles in my room. I named them, I made up songs about them, and sang them over and over again. My second year in the hospital, I decided to relive my life, all the parts I could remember, in as vivid of detail as I could manage. Sadly, I hadn't paid much attention to my life. And the alcohol and drugs had wiped away a lot. I could only come up with enough memories for eight and a half months. After that, I switched to the Zen approach. I try to live in the moment as completely as I can. I try to focus on each second, each ticking of the clock, and see that instant as an eternity to itself. Actually, I'm not sure if that's Zen or not. 
I didn't learn much about Eastern philosophy before I got turned into a vegetable, and I can't exactly go looking it up now. Anyhow, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. They wait until night to come. I don't know if it takes that long for the chalky-tasting medicine to take effect, or if the night nurse is the only one who's in on it. But they always wait until night. Then they come. Two of them. The doctor and his assistant. Both smell odd and both are bald. They unplug me from my machines and take me down the hall to the elevator. I try to focus on the sounds from the rooms that we pass. Mostly there are snores. Sometimes I hear patients muttering, sometimes groaning. And then we're in the elevator, descending, descending. I swear it gets hotter as we go, like we're falling into the bowels of hell. Actually, it isn't heat, it's fear terror. Eventually we stop and they pull me out of the elevator and down the hall. The heat disappears as they drag me into the operating room. Actually, it's the morgue. I know because of the smell and the cold and because once after they pulled the lamp over me, but just before they turned it on, I could see bodies reflected in it. They strip me of my clothes and lay me on an icy table. Then they begin cutting. They cut into me, into my stomach. Precise cuts, always in the same place. They slice me open and I try to scream, try to throw myself off the cold, metal square. I feel the knives slicing into me. Cold, hard, invasive things violating the core of my being. It goes on and on. And when I think I cannot possibly go on any longer, that they must have sliced every nerve and severed every part of me an inch at a time, some more. I wish I could pass out from the pain. I wish I could block it out or meditate my way to some kind of peaceful oblivion, but I can't. Eventually, though, they do finish, and both men set down their blades. That's when the assistant disappears from view. I can hear him, still in the room. He walks to something close by, a refrigerator, I think, which he opens, and then he returns. He has a metal container, stainless steel, and covered in ice. Though the assistant holds it with his bare hands, unconcerned with the cold, the doctor removes the top and reaches in. 
digging through whatever is inside for a few seconds before removing a slimy, squishy ball. He sets it on the table and digs through the container again. He pulls out six of the disgusting grayish-green things before closing the container back up. The assistant returns it to where he got it and then makes his way back over to me. The cutting felt like a violation, like a brutal assault. Somehow, what they do next feels worse. The slimy things that they put into me don't technically hurt, but they feel wrong. It's like having your arm twisted and contorted into an unnatural position, then forced to stay that way. Only it's happening inside my body. Organs shifting, being pushed aside as a slimy substance slips into my blood. I'm not simply violated. I am corrupted. I am unclean. When the last of the things is placed in me, they sew me back up. They sew those things into me. Back in my room, I try to count the holes in the ceiling. I try to pick at memories from my youth. I try to live in the moment. I try everything to distract myself from the things inside me. The things that grow with each passing day. The things that move about. The things that I can feel slowly nibbling at me. I sleep in short, restless bursts. Dreaming monsters are crawling through my stomach, out of my mouth. Dreaming of animals ripping their way out of me. Sometimes they devour me. Sometimes they just leave and I lie helpless in bed as nurses come and go, checking my pulse and taking samples, ignoring the gore pouring endlessly out of me. And then one of the things inside of me twists or bites down and I wake up. The next morning, Amelia comes in again, smiling, chatting, checking up on me, making sure I don't have any bed sores, telling me about the guy she met last night. I try to listen, but I can't. The corruption inside of me is growing, feeding on me, tainting me. Then she gives me my shots. The things inside of me like the shots. They're always more active afterwards, always hungrier. This isn't the first batch I've had inside of me. And I can't help but wonder how I've survived so many of them feeding on me. Perhaps my paralysis helps. Perhaps my body is better able to handle the internal damage because... So little else is happening. Or perhaps that's what the shots are for.
or the chalky taste. Or maybe this was all a dream. Maybe I was really in a coma and everything that was happening to me was a delusion brought about by endless self-loathing. No, I didn't hate myself that much. I didn't hate anyone that much. It's easy to lose track of time when you can't move, can't communicate, when your days are a blur of routine, but when you have things inside of you, when you have parasites lodged between your organs, slowly devouring you, you start to pay attention to the passage of days. One month. That's how long they left those things in me. 30 days exactly. I used the tiles on the ceiling to count down my time. There were four tiles directly over my head. Four tiles. Each tile with four corners. That made 16. The first 16 days were one corner of a tile. The tiles made up one large rectangle. A rectangle with four corners. 16 plus 4 made 20. The rectangle had three vertical bars in it. One on each side, and one in the middle. It also had three horizontal bars in it. One on each side, and one in the middle. 20 plus 6 made 26. Then there were the four tiles. 26 plus 4 made 30. 30 days. Every day after my injections, when the things inside of me were most active, when they were the hungriest, I would count off my 30 days. I would count how many had passed and how many were left, front to back, back to front. I calculated the numbers of hours I had endured this time. I calculated the number of hours I had left, the number of minutes, the number of seconds. I double-checked the math. 30 days, 29, 28. Amelia got moved to a different shift. And I got a surly old crone who talked to the equipment more than me. And even then, only to curse at it. 17, 16. An old man down the hall from me died in the middle of the night. His heart gave out, according to the nurses. I envy him. I spend the next several days trying to stress my heart out, trying to make it crash. Eleven, ten, nine. The priest who comes by to read to us has gotten to Revelations. It's a very visual book. I can practically see it as he's reading. For a few seconds, I can almost forget the things crawling around inside of me. <laughs> then one of them takes a bite. Three, two, one. They come for me again. I know what's coming. The cutting, the agony, but it's a price I'll willingly pay to get these things out of me. 
through the hall, down the elevator into the morgue. I'm eager this time, looking forward to the pain. They cut me open and I almost black out. The eggs that were in me have hatched or molted or something. The things they pull out of me look more like spiders, but with extra legs. The doctor and his assistant handle them carefully, lovingly. They move them off me and into something nearby. One of the dead bodies, I think. I hear a crunching sound as the creature begins to eat their new host with reckless abandon. I want to throw up. The doctor and his assistant pause, looking down at me. I wish they'd get on with it. The sewing isn't pleasant, but once it's over, I'm back to plain old ordinary misery again. I look forward to that. He won't be able to handle another batch, the doctor says. I'm surprised. They never talk. He might be able to handle three, the assistant argues. No. The doctor shakes his head and pokes at something inside of me. He's done. Done? Am I done? Will they finally let me die? The assistant nods and moves out of my view. The doctor leans in, pulling a pen light, which he uses to check my eyes. Time for your miracle cure, Mr. Moreau. Cure? I stare at him, confused. He can't cure me. With everything I know, with everything they've done to me, he can't risk me living. He can't. The assistant steps back into view. There's something on his shoulder. It looks like the things they've pulled out of me but larger. A giant spider with little limbs. But they aren't limbs. Not like a human's. Not even like a spider. They're tentacles. Long thin things. The creature slithers down the assistant's arm and into the gaping hole in me. The corruption I felt before, the tainted feeling at having the young creatures in me is nothing next to this. Even paralyzed, I can feel my body reacting, twitching, trying to reject the thing. To no avail. It climbs into me, and its tentacles stretch out, slithering throughout my body, everywhere, out to my limbs, to my head. I feel things cracking inside of me, bones breaking, muscle tearing. Is this thing, this creature, makes room for itself. The last tentacle, the slowest of the bunch, slithers along my spine. 
along the inside. It climbs up and up. My body spasms as it climbs through my spine and into my brain. The two men watch, faces expressionless. Finally, the doctor reaches down, pulling my skin back into place and begins sewing me back together. (laughs) As he does, I move. My hand raises up in front of me. And my head turns to look at it. My fingers curl into a fist and then uncurl. (gasps) But it isn't me moving them. It isn't me. (gasps) I sit up. No, not me. It sits up. The thing wearing me sits up and looks around. Do you know who you are? The doctor asks. The thing wearing me opens my mouth, then closes it. I can feel something happening in my brain, not physically. The brain doesn't have any nerves, but I can feel something. The thing wearing me opens my mouth again, using me like a puppet. Its slimy tentacles manipulating my body from the inside in a way that makes me feel ill. Morrow, the thing says. Good, the doctor pats his shoulder. Lay back down. We need to take you back to your room. Tomorrow night we'll practice more. The thing wearing me lies back down and closes its eyes. I scream. In my mind, I howl and grind my teeth. I weep. In my mind. The thing wearing me takes no notice. The thing wearing me. It can't do this to me. It can't. It can't use my body while I'm still in it. I'm not dead. I'm not dead. And here is the treat I promised you. I'm currently reading the book, Building 51. And it's been such a fun read, I just had to share it with you. Author Jennifer L. Place gave me permission to read a chapter to you. It's available now for purchase on Amazon. And believe me, this isn't sponsored. I really do just enjoy this book and wanted to share it with you. For a little more context, here is what Building 51 is about. 
partially burned and completely abandoned, the Hudson River State Hospital for the Insane stands as a crumbling reminder of the dark early days of the treatment of the mentally ill. While the hospital was touted as revolutionary, it was more of a warehouse. Shock treatment, lobotomies, and straitjackets weren't scary stories. They were the reality. For 140 years, unspeakable acts happened within the hospital's walls and wards, and it was not only the patients who committed them. In Building 51, a group of seven friends exploring the ruins discover a room full of old, battered suitcases. Why were they still there? Because their owners never left, and they're excited to have visitors. Now, here is a chapter from Building 51. Adam continued forward, his movements almost dreamlike. He barely heard the door close. He was deaf to George's screams of concern from the hallway. He merely moved on toward the shadow in the corner, reaching out his injured arm as if to brush away the darkness like loathsome cobwebs. As his fingers permeated the darkness, it seemed to dissolve around him. The light in the room changed, growing brighter. Surprised, he looked around once again and was unsettled to see that it was different somehow. Had the shadows made it appear dimmer when he first entered? The paint on the walls was no longer peeling. It looked fresh and unblemished. The light fixtures were unbroken and glowing softly. There was still no furniture in the room aside from the lone chair, though it was altered from his original impression. It was as if the chair had just been placed inside the room. The vinyl appeared brand new, the metal gleaming. Movement from the rear corner of the room drew his attention once again. Where there had been but a shadow, there was now the figure of a man standing there, facing the wall. The figure was tall, easily six feet, but slight in build. He had long, scraggly brown hair, which fell past his shoulders in knots and snarls. One arm hung against his body, which was clad in a powder blue hospital johnny. The snaps at the back were done up improperly, making the material hang askew. Filthy boxer shorts peeking out at the bottom. Bewildered, Adam glanced around the room again, unsure if he was imagining this. Had he pivoted all the way, he would have seen Georgia's face at the window, her small fist banging against the glass in a vain attempt to gain his attention. But he didn't, and instead moved forward toward the man in the corner. Still, the man stood, his body twitching every few moments, his hanging left arm 
would pull up toward his chest in a spasm, then drop down to his waist once again. His right arm was pulled up in front of his chest, and Adam was unable to see it. Was it possible an old patient had experienced a breakdown and come back here because it was familiar? Unlikely as it may seem, Adam didn't believe it was out of the realm of possibility. Certainly, stranger things must have happened to people who had lived here. Excuse me? He stammered, unsure of what to say and feeling stupid as he spoke. He took another hesitant step toward the man. Are you lost? Can I help you? No. No help, the man replied, sounding more like moaning than words. Adam stopped moving feeling frozen as the other man began to turn toward him from the corner. As the man pivoted, Adam could see his knobby knees on the naked legs. The front of the Johnny was as cockeyed and dirty as the back. There were streaks of what Adam first believed was dirt or mud down the front, thin trails leading down from the neckline. He glanced up quickly to the face, which was neither young nor old, It was a wasted face, a sad face. It was gaunt, cheeks covered in graying beard and stubble. He had a hooked nose and thin lips, which moved soundlessly as he attempted to speak further. Adam noticed the eyes, which were terrified and angry, and something else, something else about the eyes. He was unable to discern the detail at first, the sum of the parts he'd been observing unable to come together to a whole. And then Adam saw it. He was bleeding from the inner corner of one eye, nearest the bridge of the nose. A rivulet of blood had coursed its way down the man's face before drying there, looking like an angry welt. The blood trail continued down his face to the gown he wore. It was not dirt, as Adam had initially thought. It was blood, all blood. Adam's eyes were drawn to the man's hands, which he had been previously hiding from view. He was gripping what appeared to be a spike in one hand, and a hammer in the other. Panicked, Adam looked the man in the eye. The terror he had believed he saw in those eyes earlier was gone, replaced with eager excitement. No help. No help. No help, the man repeated moving toward Adam with surprising speed. The man in the gown was on Adam before he ever had a chance to react. The man knocked Adam backward, falling into the chair in the center of the room. The patient, or whatever he was, straddled him, 
long legs pinning Adams on either side. He was strong, far stronger than Adam anticipated as he frantically struggled to free himself. Words had been replaced with a high, keening wail from the lips of the patient. He reached his left hand to the back of Adam's head, gripping a fistful of hair and yanking his head back toward the floor. The man moved one of his legs, pinning Adam beneath a bony kneecap upon his chest. The spike was cold as it was inserted, almost gently into the corner of Adam's eye socket, sliding easily through the soft meat. It held in place, standing upright. Adam's eyes rolled, attempting to see around the obstruction. Adam screamed in horror as he felt his bladder release. Warmth he barely noticed, soaking his jeans. The light reflected off the metal hammer as the man raised it high in the air, preparing to strike. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Apologies again for my tardiness. Please send me your stories. For the first time since the show started, I'm actually running low. So if you've had an idea rattling around in your head or you've been putting off sending one in, now is the time to do it. Send all stories to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Also, thank you so much to those of you who joined my live stream on Sunday. It was so much fun and I hope to do one again soon. Now... For Patreon shoutouts, if you'd like to become a Patreon donor, just visit patreon.com slash scareyoutosleep to check out the different tiers. My eternal gratitude to Katie Iyer and Kristen Minnis. Thank you so much, you guys, and I apologize again if I butchered your names. You can follow the show on social media, Instagram and Twitter at scareyoutosleep, join the Facebook group, that's where I have done two live streams now. If you aren't being asked any questions, then you have found the page, not the group. But there is a link to the group on the page. And please answer the questions. It just helps us to know if you're going to try to sell us Bitcoin or Amway or not. I think that's all for now. Go check out Jen's book. I will leave a link in the show notes. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Do you feel depressed and listless? Do you find social interactions exhausting or terrifying? Do you or someone you know have dark thoughts echo in your mind on a regular basis? Don't worry, we do too. I'm Chris. And I'm Lindsay. And we're the hosts of How Are You Holding Up? A podcast by the depressed for the depressed. We aren't doctors, therapists, or anything of the sort. We just have depression and anxiety. And want to talk about it. So come and join us on a mental health adventure wherever you download your podcasts. And let us know, how how are are you holding up? Hey guys, I'm Tara, and I'm joined by my friends Heather and Jessica. Hi! And we're the hosts of Three Spook Girls, a new horror comedy podcast where we drink and talk about all things that scare us. 
Sometimes it's a haunted house, and sometimes it's ghosts. And sometimes it's about creepy effing black-eyed kids who will catch these hands if they show up at my door at 2 a.m. And yes, I will punch a ghost in the face, and then he'll cry about it in the bathroom later. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, and CastBox. Pour your favorite drink and join the conversation with us on Instagram and Twitter at Three Spooked Girls. And take a drink when we mispronounce things. So again, join us for Three Spooked Girls, available on iTunes, Podbean, and CastBox. Bye! Bye! Bye.